1: everyone and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Klobis, your host for the channel. Today I'm talking with Jeffrey Stewart about his biography of the author and educator Alan Locke, entitled The New Negro, The Life of Alan Locke. Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Thank
0: you for having me.
1: Well thank you for agreeing to come on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Well I'm a professor
0: of black studies at UC Santa Barbara in California, and I'm a historian primarily and I've been working on uh, the biography for some time, uh, really started interested in it when I was a graduate student at Yale in 1979 and then put it aside and then came back to it. So um, I'm basically an intellectual historian and I write on culture. Art history has been a particular interest recently. So I'm glad to to have opportunity to bring to, to life somebody who loved art very much.
1: You mentioned that, in some ways, this project dates back to uh, your time in in school. Did you envision that you would be writing a biography of uh, Locke, or were you initially thinking of a slightly different project and it became a biography?
0: Yes. I I mean, I I thought it would have biographical elements, but um, it it was really um, a kind of study or history of his ideas. Uh, at the time, I was particularly interested in the fact that he had been a friend of Horace Callan and together uh, they had generated the concept cultural pluralism. The idea that to be an American, you didn't have to give up your ancestral culture, but you could be uh, appreciative of your Jewish heritage as well as be uh, um, American. Uh, you could have a sense of your African past and identity as well as be American. So that was what really uh, got me interested. I. Uh, uh, been a philosophy undergraduate major at UC Santa Cruz, and he was a philosopher interested in value theory. So that kind of was my initial connection with him. And uh, I was really
1: doing a history of ideas at that point. It really, what you just described, really points to the breadth of Locke's life that you presented the book because he was a philosopher, he was a teacher, he was a a, a sponsor of the arts, and and, and he had this enormous influence upon uh, American life at that time. A- and yet, in, in, while he's recognized for that by a lot of people, he doesn't have quite the same prominence as some of the other individuals that we associate with that era, like, say, W. B. Du Bois or Langston Hughes or Zora Neale Hurston. It, do you think that's because he was a philosopher or do you think that was because he didn't have quite the same big book or uh, outsized uh, platform that that some of these other people did?
0: Yes, I think that's probably all of those things are, are factors. You know, philosophers aren't considered, you know, the, the leading lights of American uh, history or society. Not like, for example, in France, Jean-Paul Sartre is considered, you know, a kind of heroic figure. And, uh, you know, is very well well known, I think, also to Locke uh, avoided the civil rights um, uh, activism that someone like um, W.B. Du Bois uh, advocated or, or, or Martin Luther King practiced. So in that sense, when we think about the black experience, typically in the United States, it's often seen within the frame of civil rights. And while he did have a real civil rights impact, feeling that art and culture was a way to advance civil rights, it wasn't um, in the way that, say, Du Bois writing essays on lynching and, and uh, criticizing uh, directly. American uh, political practices. He wasn't a person who did that. And so he doesn't come up on that uh, radar. I also think that for many years, he's sort of an invisible figure because he's mainly a critic. He's not a creative writer like Langston Hughes or Zora Neale Hurston. He's not producing novels and and, and poems. He's reacting to other people and promoting other people who do that. And that's a, a kind of leading from behind sort of position in American letters that often is, uh, uh, rather invisible. And finally, I think because he was gay, I think, uh, also made it, um, somewhat difficult for some people to place him within the pantheon of typical, uh, African American, uh, Heroes. I know that when I was first starting out working on it, and even a little later, uh, various people would say, well, you know, uh, don't really do anything or say that much about the fact that he's uh, gay, because that may uh, turn some people off or whatever. So I think that to a certain extent, a lot of people sort of worked around him or they liked his ideas, but to take on the biographical meant to take on issues of uh, that they really didn't have terminology in the 80s and and early 90s to deal with. I think now we have the notion of intersectionality. Uh, We have a lot of more conceptual tools uh, to discuss a life like his.
1: That's really fascinating because in reading your book, his uh, sexuality is so central to what you describe as his life. It's it's fascinating to imagine how much different your biography would have been had that not been there. It would have it, it, given what I've learned from reading it. It seems like we would have only been discussing say two thirds of his life. Yes, I was wondering if you could uh, start us off by telling us something about his. Uh, Childhood, his upbringing, his background. Because I was thinking about some of the things you were just discussing, and 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 as you explain in the book, a lot of what these of these issues are informed by his childhood and by the context of of the world in which he grew up.
0: Yes. Well, I I call I think one of the chapters. uh a black Victorian childhood. So essentially in the 19th century, really beginning in the first half of the 19th century when slavery was still existent, but up in the north in places like Philadelphia, Washington, uh, even New York and Chicago to a smaller extent, there was a class of free people black people who had never been enslaved, uh, who educated themselves, and who were sort of the leaders of their community. And they they were middle class in their aspirations. They were highly assimilated. They they studied the classics of English literature. They were almost Uh They embraced the Victorian tradition, which was a series of manners and codes about how you behaved. And they felt that if they behaved in that kind kind of way, in a middle class, uh, uh, you know, sort of stiff upper lip kind of way, that would be protection against racism, it'd be a kind of armor. And so that formed his upbringing, and uh, he embraced that totally. Uh, the also other part of it was culture. Uh, culture with a capital C, as uh, some people said, that, that culture was a, a a system of relationships and appreciation. You, you learned all the classics. And by your knowledge of that classics, those classics, you showed you were a civilized man, particularly uh, at that time. And so that was his core values which he got from his father, but even more so from his uh, mother, that the way you behaved allowed you to sort of manage racism uh, from a middle class standpoint uh, by assimilating as much of American and particularly
1: European culture as possible As you explained though, his whole his position in the middle class was economically tenuous. You, you talk about a childhood that was uh, in which his parents, especially his mother, really strove to uh, to uh, in, to ensure he had the opportunities that we would think of for the time as middle class opportunities.
0: Yes. Well, his father died when he was six. And so that took, you know, a um, breadwinner out of the family. She was a school teacher in uh, Philadelphia schools and then later in Camden, New Jersey schools. And so, you know, she, a year or something like that was what, you know, uh, she received and but yet she sent him to these great public schools that were available in Philadelphia. Uh, Central High uh, was uh, an elite public school. And uh, he went there and he excelled. But of course, he ended up going to Harvard. And then he, after excelling at Harvard, he was the first African-American Rhodes Scholar to Oxford. And while he did get fellowship money, particularly during the time at Harvard, they were always basically uh, uh, pulling together pieces of money, paying off debts, paying his tuition, borrowing. And it was a tremendous amount of stress. Although, interestingly, it was a lot of stress on her. But he looked at it as a kind of game. He believed that he, he was owed the best education that America or Europe had to offer. And that if he had to, you know, manipulate and cheap some people out of some money or whatever to make that possible, that that the end, his education as a cultured person justified those means.
1: What sort of education was he thinking of? And what sort of education did his mother aspire for him?
0: Well, that he would be a person who would be cultured. So that means he would know all of English literature, he would know all of European art, he would be an expert on civilization as it was, you know, Western civilization was the, the core um, um, value and, and body of knowledge, um, you know, uh, the, sort of the best that's ever been fought. Uh, and said Matthew Arnold's notion of culture. Uh, the problem, of course, is is that in that citadel of culture, there was usually no place for anybody African American or African, and so. He's kind of a person who's invading that space and eventually, uh, particularly when he gets to Harvard, begins to want to find some way to use that uh, theory of culture to advance himself as the interpreter of an African-American or Afro-American culture. The problem, of course, is is that that whole idea of Western civilization inculcated in him a dislike for things African and things uh, 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 African Americans so in his life there's always this struggle he's repulsed in a sense uh, by lower-class blacks Uh, he wants to avoid being associated with them at the same time he needs a culture from African Americans largely generated from by working-class African Americans in order to announce himself as a a, a man of culture of black culture so that tension uh, really uh, explodes during his time at Harvard from 1907 to nineteen uh, well, 1904 to 1907 and really continues throughout the rest of his life
1: I ho- hope we can return back to that a little bit when we talk about the 1920s when you really see a lot of that those threads coming together in terms of what he's doing but I want to talk a bit of, I want to ask you a bit more about his time at Harvard because it, as you explained, you, he, was not necess, he was not the first African-American there, but it was definitely a point at which he was uh, traversing a world in which African-Americans are not commonplace. And I was especially fascinated by your description as to how that calculus played out when it came to his application of the Rhodes Scholarship. I was wondering if you could elaborate upon that a little bit.
0: Yes. Well, I guess it was basically... Um, 1906 or so and it's not really clear when he first started thinking about it but he had this feeling that um, he wanted to go to Europe. That you know, in those days, if you're a cultured person and of the upper class, of course, you'd go to Harvard or Princeton or whatever. But you had to go to Europe. You had to have the grand tour. You had to be exposed to European culture. But he didn't have the money that his other classmates had to basically just go over and, as they would say, soak up culture on his own. So the Rhodes Scholarship, which gave me three years at Oxford, was the means. Uh, uh to him accomplishing that. Uh, but he was very skillful at thinking about that. If he let it be known generally at Harvard that he was going to, to go for the Rhodes uh, scholarship, there might be opposition. Uh, Because one of his other uh, Friends had uh, announced that he was going for various fellowships and some of his white friends and even faculty members opposed that So he went about the process of applying Somewhat secretively finding out from his mother when the exams were held and then he also decided to go from new uh, basically uh, apply from Pennsylvania rather than New Jersey his uh, uh, His aunt and uncle lived in Pennsylvania and he always put that down His address, but his actual address was in New Jersey. But New Jersey was a far more competitive because they only picked basically, you know, one person from each state. And uh, in New Jersey, there's Princeton. There was a lot of competition. Uh, So uh, eventually he passed the exam and then he went down uh, to Pennsylvania for uh, uh, an interview And they announced then that that they had selected him and a tremendous amount of controversy erupted in the United States because at that time the Rhodes Scholarship was considered the sign of intellectual accomplishment, uh, you know, in the stratosphere and that a black person or Negro, as they called it at that time, uh, was the recipient of this scholarship, uh, struck some people as um, a a contradiction. Even one of his professors later on said that he thought it was an error of judgment because to be a Rhodes Scholar meant you were a representative of American civilization. And that professor thought no Negro could really be a representative of American civilization.
1: You describe the awarding of the Rhodes Scholarship uh, to Locke as controversial, and that best describes the reaction among many whites. As you describe among African-Americans, though, it made Locke uh, a celebrity.
0: Yes, it did. Many people seized on it. I think he didn't anticipate the extent to which the black population, you know, in 1907 was hungry for something that would validate Uh, that they had arrived that, you know, I mean, that essentially uh, 40 some years after uh, the the end of slavery, that there could be an African American who could compete intellectually on the same stage with Mm -hmm. the most uh, wealthy and prestigious white students of his time. That really meant something, a great well of, of race pride came forward, um, which was good in one sense, but which he chafed against a little bit, because at that time, in 1907, he really wanted to say that this is my achievement as an individual. And so over time, he became more and more annoyed with the fact that uh, people were uh, uh, claiming him as their representative. He he didn't like that. Hmm. What was his time at Oxford like? Well, you know, when he first was going over on the boat, I think he imagined that this would be a glorious time, sort of like the time he had had at Harvard, which had been one of his best times ever in his life as an undergraduate, and that he would maybe even find a way to escape the American race problem. Uh, by maybe becoming a permanent expatriate or diplomat or whatever. But when he got over there, he ran uh, squarely into American racism and, of course, uh, British complicity with that racism because scholars from the southern states were aghast that a Black person was among them. And so they went about making things very difficult for him. Uh, He ended up being in one of the less sophisticated colleges. Uh, The Rhodes Trust wouldn't place him in the the colleges that he wanted to be in, uh, Maglin and others. Um, the, The Southern Rhodes Scholars prevailed on the Rhodes Trust to not invite him to the Thanksgiving dinner that all of the Americans in Oxford, let alone just the Rhodes Scholars, uh, were invited to. And it was really his friend Horace Callan who actually, with another American at Oxford, held a separate. Thanksgiving dinner for him. And while he never discussed it in his letters to his mother, which he wrote almost uh, every other day, uh, it deeply wounded him and confirmed to him that even abroad, he would have to deal with the fact that among certain whites, he was considered a pariah and that the idea that he would be able to escape racism by going abroad was really a myth.
1: You also describe it as a period of great so uh, personal awakening for him. You going back to his homosexuality, it was something that uh, he uh, recognized you know, well before. But in England, it seems he felt it was almost as though he felt he had greater freedom in which to uh, explore it and 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 uh, and uh, understand it.
0: Yes, I think that's true. I think that the compensation of his being excluded and, uh, Uh, demonized by the Southern Rhodes scholars who, you know, would try to make his life miserable on the streets of Oxford was that uh, his homosexuality connected with a certain group of students at Oxford who themselves were gay, and he became part of that community, and that was a sort of second home for him. I think the other thing, though, that Oxford provided him with is connection with other people of color, particularly colonials, uh, people from uh, India, from Egypt, from Sri Lanka, who were at Oxford because, you know, they had excelled in their school systems. And they came with a critique of imperialism and a critique of colonialism and showed him that in a sense, what he was struggling against uh, in America and even in, in England was analogous to what they were struggling with that racism wasn't just an american problem it was part of a larger framework of imperialism and colonialism and that one of the things he had to do was to embrace and celebrate that his native culture and and uh, critique the the larger western civilization that he had been so enamored of when he was a schoolboy in philadelphia
1: how did his uh, degree progress work? Because Rhodes Scholars often were uh, given an opportunity to earn a, a bachelor's there. And, and, and Locke himself undertook that journey. You described he, he goes to Berlin as well. Uh, what exactly happened there? He came over wanting
0: to get a what's called a B-Lit, uh, which is a Bachelor of Literaries, which is essentially a, um, a degree in the classics, uh, and uh, to do that, you have to be able to read and write criticism of texts that are in uh, Greek and Latin. And while he had taken Greek and Latin uh, um, in high school and uh, Harvard, he never had been exposed to it at the level that the students in England were. So when he started to really have to be pressured to, to do that work, he had difficulty. And he got tutors and whatever, but eventually reached a point where he realized he really couldn't do it. So then he shifted. That's really he really became completely invested in philosophy. Up to that point, he'd been in literature and philosophy. Then he tried to get a bachelor's of science in philosophy— Um, And that was a little more unusual. It was kind of like a graduate degree uh, in today's term. And he chose a somewhat odd topic of value theory. Value theory at this time was something that was mainly from Austria and Germany. And so it wasn't probably the most politic thing for him to choose to work on at Oxford. Um, So but he pursued it nevertheless. Uh, he went to Germany. He took courses at the University of Berlin, and he wrote uh, essentially a three, 400 page thesis for his degree on the concept of value. But it was not approved by his committee. Uh, they were um, not convinced of his argument. They also were critical of him. There was a sense that his behavior that had not been what was appropriate. He had tried to live the life of the man of gentlemanly culture there. He'd run up debts. Um, he had been, uh, I guess, in the American uh, uh, terminology, too uppity for the British uh, officials. And so they punished him by sending him down without a degree. And this was a tremendous personal embarrassment to him. I mean, the idea that he would not be able to come away from Oxford with a degree was something he had never, never um, um, uh, predicted. And many years later... Uh, I found that uh, he had written a note to himself really in the 1930s uh, where he uh, ruminated over the great embarrassment of it. The embarrassment was such that when he returned to the United States, he actually masqueraded and said that he had gotten a degree. And he rationalized it that, well, since he was a race hero, if he came back without a degree, it would be embarrassment with the race and he'd have to explain how he had been a victim of racism and et cetera, et cetera. And so it was a deep-seated wound for him that he failed to get the degree there. Um, And um, he eventually compensated somewhat by going back to Harvard and getting a PhD in philosophy in 1918. And in terms of his career as a professor in the United States, that actually was much more valuable anyway. But he still never really completely lived down the embarrassment of that failure at Oxford.
1: But well, before he uh, completed his PhD at Oxford, at Harvard, he uh, took up a position at Howard University. And I was wondering if you could explain a bit uh, what the, the, the importance of Howard University and the initial position that uh, Locke took up within the institution.
0: Yes. Well, Howard University had been created in the early reconstruction period as part of the nation's obligation to educate what was called the freedmen at that time and uh it had been a tremendous uh source of support in the black community his father even had gone to howard university and gotten a law degree there although he was never actually able to practice law because of prejudice but uh, howard was the most prestigious, and it was particularly, it was a university. So many of the historically black uh, uh, colleges at that time were not universities. Uh, H- Howard was a university that even uh, had a philosophy, uh, um, I mean, it was just a, a, a citadel of knowledge. And the only other alternative that we really had at that time was to go to Tuskegee, which was uh, Tuskegee Institute in Alabama. And and he was actually uh, slated uh, possibly to go there. But in the end, uh, Booker T. Washington wrote a letter to Howard and allowed him to uh, go to Howard and uh, become a uh, professor or really lecturer in the teacher's college there. So initially he taught uh, teaching pedagogy. That's really what Howard's bread and brother was, was to educate people to go out and become teachers in the public schools in America. Uh, eventually, after he got his PhD, he was able to move into the College of Letters and Science and teach a philosophy, which was really unusual. It was the only school in the United States, uh, historically black universities and colleges for many years that had a philosophy department rather than a religious department. So he was quite uh, saved in a way uh, by Howard University.
1: You open the book with this very fascinating scene, which is uh, the you, it, it, you open the book in 1921 with uh, the death of his mother, who had come to uh, Washington to uh, live with her son, and you present it at the beginning of the book as as sort of a pivot point in in Locke's life. And I was wondering if you could it, it explain exactly uh what how it was a pivot point and, and what it led Locke to do. Yes,
0: yeah, so this was 1922 and um he you know after he returned to um Harvard in nineteen sixteen to study for his PhD, uh his he had his mother retire and join him uh uh in Boston at at graduate school because I think he somewhat suspected that being at Oxford, he had been essentially too far away from, his, from her emotional support. So he brought her with him to, to, to grad school and he was a success. And after that year in Boston, uh, he brought his mother back to Washington, D.C., where she lived with him when he resumed his teaching as a professor at Howard University. So they lived together, you know. Closely from, say, 1916 to 1922. They had always had a very intense relationship, but they lived together. And then she became ill uh, very briefly, and she died at home. And uh, part of the story that unearthed uh, during this research was that various people said that when she died, he held a wake at his house for his mother, and he invited people over. And when they got there, Uh, She was propped up on the couch um, and, uh, you know, as if she was alive. And uh, he held tea with the assembled guests with her for the last time. And, of course, this sort of shocked the people at the time. But some people like Georgia Douglas Johnson, who was a poet in uh, Washington, D.C., Recognized that this was a sign that Locke was going to have great difficulty coping with the fact that his mother was no longer there. As an isolated uh, gay man with very few friends uh, in a black community in Howard and Washington, D.C., that was very middle class, he was a very isolated person. And she had been the one person that gave him unqualified. Regard, support, and praise. So, where is he going to find that? He had to almost confront the fact that he was, for the first time in his thirties, going to have to be an adult, and so that pushed him out. He went to Berlin, which was sort kind of a place where he always felt comfortable because of his gay identity. But he also witnessed in in Berlin sort of the the, the Weimar Republic's awakening of modernist culture, and decided. Uh, to come back to the United States and to become a leader, a spokesperson for that culture, that modernism, when a worldwide uh, phenomenon, was best represented in the United States by the art and culture of African Americans. He didn't really like jazz that much. Nevertheless, everybody at that time was saying jazz was a modernist cultural form. And so he thought, maybe I can find a kind of second home Among artists and writers, playwrights, uh, classical musicians, singers like Roland Hayes, uh, people who essentially love the arts. And we can kind of use the arts to advance the sense of respect and pride internally for black people, but also their reputation as culture contributors to whites and others outside the group.
1: How did he... See, how did he feel that he could best do this? What was sort of a, approach to uh, achieving this goal did he have in mind?
0: Well, since he wasn't really a successful creative writer himself, uh, he had to work through other people. Unlike, say, T.S. Eliot, you know, who you know wrote The Wasteland and other poems and kind of articulated and then criticized And created the critical framework. Well, a lot didn't have that. So what he had to do was work with other artists. And particularly young men. Like County Cullen. Uh, Langston Hughes, Gene uh, Tumor, those are probably the three, uh, Claude McKay, those four were already beginning to write a new kind of Black literature. Uh, Claude McKay was using the sonnet form to essentially create a kind of protest literature. Uh, his If We Must Die poem, which had been written during the, the race riots in 1919, asserted a kind of right for self-defense among Black people. Uh, County Cullen was sort of writing, you know, wonderful lyric poetry that was really very beautiful and suggested that black people had as much of a sense and entitlement for beauty as any other people. And then Langston Hughes was trying to find a form that expressed the beauty in working class black people. Later on, he would develop blues poems, uh, which would be quite uh, uh, powerful. Gene Toomer, who was living in Washington and actually had several media and conversations with Locke, went down south and wrote a a poetic uh, novel, uh, Cain, that talked about the beauty and culture in uh, unlettered, uh, um, um, uneducated black people. So they were providing him with the material that he could then use to argue for a renaissance. You know, that uh, Africans had come over and they'd had a racial uh, inheritance and culture. It had been suppressed for much of the time in the United States. And now it was experiencing a
1: rebirth in the 1920s, in the writings of these several poets. So he's writing about this as a critic. He's uh, writing essays, he's giving speeches, and you describe in particular a uh, collection that he puts together in 1925 and uh, how that helps to sort of crystallize a lot of these, uh, bring, toge- excuse me, bring together a lot of these different strands and, and, and concentrate them and show what's taking place.
0: Yes. Yeah. Well, he was asked there was a he was asked by uh, Paul Kellogg, who is the editor of the survey graphic, which was a uh, progressive reform magazine to edit a special issue called Harlem Mecca of the New Negro, where the this awakening of these various uh, writers would be tied to the emergence of Harlem. As a cultural center in the United States, because after all, Harlem had emerged. Um, roughly 1917, 1918 as a center because of the Great Migration. A lot of black people had moved up from the South to the North. A lot of institutions in black culture had cited themselves in Harlem. The NAACP was cited there. Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Organization uh, was cited there. So it was kind of a center. And Paul Kellogg wanted to tie this sociological emergence to this aesthetic uh, blossoming. And so he asked Locke to write the essays for that. And so Locke did. And he, he worked together with the artists and writers. He worked with the, um, the German artist Vino Rice in illustrating the issue. And so when that came out in March 1st, 1925, it was the most successful issue of a survey graphic that they had ever had, announcing this new black subjectivity called the New Negro as cited in uh, Harlem. Unfortunately for Locke, not long after that, uh, he was fired from uh, Howard University uh, because he was considered something of uh, upstart and malcontent on uh, advocating uh, faculty getting more money and their salaries, etc. And that allowed him to devote all his time to turning this special issue into a book, the anthology you mentioned, and it was called The New Negro and interpretation. And it was an expanded version of the survey graphic. And uh, he welcomed in uh, diverse articles, poetry, uh, 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 drama, um, all sorts of things. And the new Negro was revealed through the art. So that was the key conceit that he had, that it wasn't just that black people were creating art and poetry that was laudable. It was that that Art announced a new identity, this new Negro who was removed from the old Negro of the slave past and was asserting that uh, he or she could determine uh, their future rather than being bounded in completely by racism
1: and uh, prejudice. You describe this movement, which is has enormous import. And yet you also personalize what's going on in terms of, of Locke's personal relationships with people like Langston Hughes, uh, like Zora Neale Hurston. And I thought that was very interesting because it was uh, far from harmonious. And as you described, sometimes Locke was seeking things in in these relationships that weren't always going to be possible.
0: Yes. Well, part of this crisis, let's say that, uh, uh, you know, uh, in him, uh, with the death of his mother was an incredible amount of no- emotional neediness, uh, which he largely managed, uh, through his sexuality. Um, uh, and so when he was in Europe, of course, uh, he could pursue relationships without any, um, uh, you know, uh, immediate consequences. When he came back, he's living in uh, Washington, uh, he felt like he was scrutinized. So often he pursued relationships with the very artists that he was also trying to promote their work. And so this created a lot of pressures, uh, both for him and for them. So particularly with Langston Hughes, who he really loved, um, uh, Langston Hughes didn't want to have a relationship uh, at least a sexual relationship, it seemed, with uh, a, a Locke. And Locke continued to pursue it in various different ways. And that complicated and in some cases ruined some of these relationships uh, because of that neediness on uh, his, his part. At the same time, with women like, say, uh, Jesse Fawcett and others, he was very competitive and misogynist. Uh, I'm not can't really prove it, but it seemed as if there may have been some early desire uh, or or some sort of possible romantic and, you know, attachment or desire on the part of Jesse Fawcett uh, with Locke. And so he repulsed her and was really quite cruel to her. So. This is one of the tensions in his life is that he wants to advance this argument that black people will be liberated, essentially, uh, through the work of artists. And he needs those artists since he's not an artist himself. And yet at the same time, he puts such pressure on those artists to satisfy so many of his needs that he often drives them away.
1: You mentioned that he needs the artist. He also needs something else, too. He needs money. And one of the other interesting parts about this point in his life is this issue of patronage. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit upon how that shaped a lot of uh, a lot of what he's trying to do and, and a lot of the ideas that he was trying to advance uh, if he could get the money for them.
0: Yeah, so even before, in 1924 or so, he and Charles Johnson, who was uh, head of Opportunity magazine, were searching for money to support what they were trying to do. So if they thought that writing and art could actually be a kind of second front in the war against racism, they needed to find some way to pay writers and others to do it. So Johnson came up with this thing called the Opportunity Writers uh, Contest, where they would pay people prizes to write uh, the best poem or the best book or whatever. And they held those. So they went about trying to raise money. And Johnson often used Locke who was more of the aesthete as the person in them. One of the people they went after was uh, Albert Barnes, who was head of the Barnes Foundation. He was a millionaire, and he was involved in uh, uh, progressive causes. Uh, but he was also, you know, a narcissist and a megalomaniac. So he was always... Yeah, he wanted, he had some money, but it was very difficult to get the money out of him. And this is one of the things that becomes a problem for Locke, is how do you get people, uh, largely white people, with money to support this black movement? He ends up uh, meeting during the time when he's uh, not employed by Howard, uh, a woman named Charlotte Mason. She attends an exhibition of African art that he put together. And after that, He talks to her about all of his dreams of, you know, having these artists supported, almost like he was trying to run his own national endowment of the arts. And he wanted her to give him the money to do that. And she was convinced of that to a certain extent. And she gave money, uh, uh, $200 a a month. She provided for a time to Zora Neale Hurston to pay her to write her books. She provided money to uh, Langston Hughes and many other artists that Locke brought to her. But the complication was that she also Uh, was a megalomaniac and a control freak so she wanted to control all the aspects of the production almost like it was an assembly line and she would pressure them to turn out work on a certain schedule and it had to be work of a certain type she had a very particular notions of what was authentic and inauthentic blackness in the works even contradicting and overruling at times what Locke felt so after a while, that relationship got out of control where he was, yes, they were receiving money, but they were being brutalized in the process of getting the kind of support they needed to do the work. And eventually uh, it fell apart with a great deal of bitterness uh, on all people's part.
1: To what degree did. Did those difficulties in terms of raising money and, and 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 doing things like like building the museum that they were talking about in Harlem, to what degree did that contribute to the uh decline of of Alain's Locke's uh involvement with the new Negro movement and the Harlem Renaissance?
0: Yes, well, I think that it began say twenty seven twenty eight with him trying to hold on to the movement. Because once he was no longer at Howard, and then, he, of course, he got his job back in 1927. Uh, but basically, he didn't have independent funds. Uh, White sort of moved in and sort of adopted the Harlem Renaissance in 1926-27 and uh, he felt like his voice, his ability to shape what kind of art people did uh, was being drowned out by people with more financial resources. So he needed the resources to hold on to a tenuous position and yet the resources ended up alienating him from the very people he wanted to influence. And so after that period of time, roughly 1930 to 31, is when the various artists leave Mrs. Mason. They decide they don't want to accept her money anymore. After that, uh, he basically doesn't have uh, really any direct influence on the writers. He still has some influence on a second group, though, that begins to emerge, which is the visual artists. The visual artists of the New Negro really emerged later, 26, 27, and 28. And that leads him to bond with another uh, patron, uh, Mary Beattie Brady, who is the director of the Harmon Foundation. And he got her through the Harmon Foundation to host a number of exhibitions at which prizes were given to African-American artists for producing art, and he began to influence them in terms of the type of art they should do. And really 1931, 1933, he's really able to shape how visual artists are at least talking about Negro art through that patron. So one of the things that's really interesting about Locke is his resourcefulness that even in the midst of failures, sometimes devastating failures that I would think, you know, (laughs) would set me back a couple of years, he would just say, okay That particular avenue didn't work. He'd take a couple of days to lick his wounds, and then he would be out there finding another person because he was convinced that the basic idea was correct. It was just finding the right people to support it. And all the people he found were flawed. But if he could manipulate and sort of improvise between the various people, uh, institutions, patrons, and artists, he could create a kind of cultural ferment that would be sustaining. And I have to say it's quite amazing that even into the early parts of the years of the Depression, he does keep money flowing to some artists. But by about 1935, Uh, The whole thing basically is coming to an end and uh, he's not able to have the influence either on uh, writers or painters that he had had in the earlier period.
1: There's another aspect, though, that he does continue to pursue in the 1930s, and that's this notion of broader education, that maybe he can't influence the production, but maybe he can influence the reception. I was wondering if you could uh, talk a bit about what he was doing there in terms of his writings and in terms of his other efforts.
0: Yes. Well, he he begins to, I think, learn from the lessons of working with individual patrons, that he needs to actually work with more corporate patrons. And this follows a transition generally in artistic patronage in the 20th century away from individuals and to institutions uh, uh, that will provide money uh, through foundations. So he essentially comes up with the idea of an adult education program. And what he wants to do is he wants to get money from the Carnegie uh, Corporation through the American Association of Adult Education to fund the production of what he calls bronze booklets. These would be a series of books that would be easy to read and understand, written by black scholars about the key areas of uh, a culture that he was interested in. So something on uh, African-American visual arts, music, uh, literature, theater, race studies, uh, adult education, history. Um, He lays this out and he works to get the Carnegie Foundation and also the Adult Education Association to fund this. And he gets a grant. Uh, in for $5,000 to pay essentially mostly uh, writers and scholars at Howard University to write these booklets. And then he sets up a distribution system completely out of his uh, post office box uh, in Washington, D.C. to sell these books to libraries in the South, uh, to bookstores, af- small African-American bookstores. Uh, some of them even go to uh, prisons where they incarcerate actually read these books, creating a knowledge about culture uh, through these uh, booklets. Of course, there's conflict here, too, because even though it's uh, a little easier working with these foundations, they still have various uh, ways of policing knowledge. So in one case, uh, he reaches out to Bubby B. Du Bois to produce a booklet. And in the course of Du Bois, who by the 1930s, 1938, was a very strong militant and critic of the, of the New Deal, Du Bois wrote a very incendiary uh, uh, pamphlet. And uh, the American Association of Adult Education had on the board a, a white expert And that uh, white expert was reviewing the manuscripts, and he objected to Du Bois' manuscript. And eventually, uh, it came to a head where Locke either had to uh, persist with trying to publish Du Bois' manuscript and lose all the funding, or, you know, basically not publish Du Bois'. And he decides not to publish Du Bois' manuscript. And instead, Uh, has uh, someone like Ralph Bunch and others, younger generation people uh, who are very militant in their own way but weren't associated with the kind of radicalism of uh, Du Bois. And I see this as a kind of turning point. On the one hand, it's very negative in the sense that, you know, Du Bois was a colleague and it really went against the values that Locke had said were going to operate in this thing. But at the same time, by not having Du Bois in there, Locke for the first time sort of separates himself from being in Du Bois's shadow. And uh, that series goes on to be very popular in the late 1930s. Uh, it sells out the first printings of almost all of the first uh, books. It's enormously successful. Uh, but by the 1940s, with the coming of World War II, uh, the sort of uh, market for this dries up. And uh, they basically stopped publishing uh, by the end of 19, uh, 19 well, around 1944,
1: 1945. And yet right up to the end of his life, uh, Locke never really stops all these efforts. I mean, practically up till, uh, you know, the, the, the very end, he's, he's still engaged very much with this cultural promotion, by which time you're talking about uh, a whole new generation of writers and artists and, 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 and a whole different, you know, new, st- new styles uh, within uh, art emerging and how he's grappling with that. And it just fascinates me how he's just he's right there throughout it all.
0: Yes, I think he finds with Richard Wright and others emerging in the 1930s, the emergence of what he calls proletarian literature. Uh, that is a uh, uh, literature that focuses on um, the black working class. Uh, There's been always that there in the earlier part, but it always had been aestheticized and romanticized. In Richard Wright, you have sort of the angry black uh, working class, particularly epitomized in uh, uh, the book Native Son. Locke comes out and actually defends uh, Wright. Uh, around that book when many people were criticizing it and sees this as the latest new iteration of the New Negro. So the New Negro for him was not a fixed identity. It was kind of an evolving zeitgeist and it had taken on uh, much more criticality, uh, much more of a socialist uh, identity uh, by the late 1930s and early 40s. And so Locke began to evolve his own uh, um, uh, position with that. Uh, He didn't want to become, you know, a back number. He was very concerned that people would not call out his name anymore. And so he continually reinvents himself in order to stay current
1: with the times. Wow. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
0: Well, I'm just, <laughs> I, you know, it took me quite a bit of time <laughs> to do this book. <laughs> so I'm taking a pause. And uh, uh, just kind of surveying uh, the landscape. I am interested in the way in which there is kind of a new New Negro today, which is somewhat related to the emergence of Afrofuturism and the the film The Black Panther. And I was thinking about that as kind of a a new phase that I might want to uh, write about. I think Locke would be very interested in that because it, it does, again, cite... Uh, Black agency back in Africa. That was something that he was very supportive of. Uh, It's also an act of the imagination. So it's not something that's, you know, completely bound by the political controversies of the day. And it also inspires a sense of great pride. And I think that was one of the things he wanted to always do is that despite what is going on in the racial conflicts of the time, that black people and even white people had the ability to turn away from the megaphone of racism and focus on the inherent beauty in the black experience and particularly in black people and the potential to create out of the most desperate times. Uh, something transcendent. So I'm thinking a little bit about the Afrofuturism. I did a uh, 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 an essay on Norman Lewis and Afrofuturism for the the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, and so I'm I'm thinking
1: about that. Well, it sounds like a very relevant project. Yes. Well, uh, Jeffrey Stewart, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you.